You're listening to a sermon podcast from Agape Baptist Church, recorded live from our Sunday service. Scripture reading is taken from Matthew chapter 15, verse 21 to 28. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And the daughter was healed instantly. This is the word of the Lord. Wow. Lord bless you, church. Now, last Sunday was Mother's Day, and today I want to continue this mothering thread as I begin my sermon. Now, I'd like to invite you to imagine this morning that you yourself are a mother. For some of you, no need to imagine so much. Specifically, you have a daughter who's in her primary school going years, right, primary school. So you go back home one day, and it sounds like a normal day, <clears throat> except that when you go home, your little girl, your daughter, is not normal at all. Her body is like contorted, and then she snarls it in a very menacing way. You try to talk sense to her and like, what's happening to you, my daughter? <laughs> but she screams at you with a voice quality that you cannot even recognize. There is something profoundly wrong with your daughter. Now, it could be a psychiatric problem, but it seems to you like it's way worse than that because you can sense dark evil just looking at her eyes. She looks like She's possessed. Now, what would you do as a mother if this were to happen to you? Well, the Bible records for us one such story. This woman that you just heard about in the scripture reading has a daughter who is severely demon-possessed. And in her desperation, she turns to Jesus. She chooses to turn to Jesus. And a woman is commanded for her faith. And then this daughter gets miraculously healed. Now, what stands out in this story is that this woman is one of the rare few in the Bible whom Jesus commands as having great faith. Now, I believe that all of us who are believers in Christ Jesus, we have faith in God. I want to know whether you ever think about much about having great faith in God. Now, in one sense, uh, faith is clearly not about the size, how great our faith is. The Bible teaches us that mustard seed size faith is sufficient for us. Right? Just now we're reminded of that in our prayer of confession. 
So ultimately, it's not about the size of our faith. It's about the object of our faith, who you believe in. That's far more important. Yet having said that, Jesus' commendation at the end of this passage about this woman with great faith, great cry having great faith, is a genuine commendation. It's not a bad thing. There is something distinctive about her faith that Jesus sees, and he compliments it as great faith, mega faith. And that's something all of us should aspire towards. Now, from today's passage, we learn this central truth, especially applicable in difficult times. And it's this. The best answer to your great cry is great faith in a great God. The best answer to your great cry is great faith in a great God. Now, in today's sermon, I'll be showing the verses on screen, but I invite you as well to open your Bibles or your Bible app to Matthew 15, 21 to 28. Matthew 15, 21 to 28, so that it's easy for you to follow along in my sermon. Now, here's the simple outline for, my narrati- for the narrative this morning. The encounter, the exchange, the blessing. The encounter, the exchange, the blessing. That's the outline for today's passage. So first, the encounter. Now, let me give you the context that leads to this particular encounter between Jesus and this woman. Verse 21 says this, And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Now, Jesus at this point is done with his ministry in Galilee already. The there refers to that Jewish region. And then he moves into a traditionally pagan territory. Pagan in the eyes of the Jews, right? Those who worship a different God. Historically, in Tyre and Sidon, there were actually already many Jews living there at that time in the first century, even though you would clearly expect to see Gentiles, non-Jews, there as well. And indeed, Jesus encounters one such person, one of those Gentiles, and that's the woman in question. Verse 22, Matthew highlights it. And behold, take, a, take notice, and behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying. What did she say? Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Now, here's a detail you must not miss. You know, you honestly can describe a woman in many, many different ways. But it's super interesting how Matthew chooses to describe this woman here. He calls her a Canaanite woman. Now, you see, by the first century, people rarely ever use the term Canaanite anymore. In fact, this term never comes out in the New Testament except here. You'll find it many times in the Old Testament, but you rarely find it in the New Testament. Why is that? Because the term conjures up a lot, a lot of bad memories for the Jews. The Canaanites were the most morally despised among Israel's enemies. Now, names have connotations. You know, it's like if you're a Singaporean and you get to meet a Japanese person, you ask a Japanese, let's say, hello, let's say when you're overseas in Japan, where are you traveling to? And the person tells you, I'm going to Southeast Asia. You say, oh, that's great. Where exactly are you going to? And the person says, I'm going to Sionanto, the light of the south. And you hear that, you're thinking, it's 2023. And you're still calling Singapore Sionanto. The moment you hear that term, 
World War II memories and amity start flooding back to your mind again. Brings you back to the past. So if you are a first century Jew reading or hearing this gospel narrative, you will get a shock here. Really, Matthew? First century already, you're still calling this woman a Canaanite? Wow. If you look at Mark's gospel in the report of the same account in Mark 7, he calls this woman a Gentile, a Syrophoenician woman. Far less offensive. Matthew is making his Jewish readers feel very uncomfortable with his description. But it's intentional. Because by doing so, it makes what the woman says even more stuck as a result. Now, what is this Canaanite woman traditional enemy of the Jews going to say. This Canaanite woman calls Jesus Lord, son of David. Now, notice that the term Lord actually is more likely a term of respect. She probably doesn't fully recognize the deity of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is God. What is commendable, though, is that she's coming to Jesus instead of her own pagan deity. Historically, there is a pagan god of healing called Ashman, E-S-H-M-U-N, Temple just 4.8 kilometers away. But she doesn't go there. She runs all the way to Jesus for healing instead. And though she's a Canaanite, she evidently knows the Jewish history and theology well. She is acknowledging Jesus as the son of David, meaning that she sees him as the Messiah, the anointed one, prophesied in the scriptures. And it's on the basis of who she believes Jesus to be that she's crying out for mercy seeking his help for deliverance of a demon-possessed daughter. Now, this woman knows Jesus can help her. But look at Jesus' reaction in verse 23. Verse 23. But he did not answer her a word. Just keep quiet. Mouth zipped. You know, you might expect Jesus to rush to her in compassion and comfort her immediately. That's how many people think about Jesus all the time. But no. Jesus basically looked like he was ignoring her. Many times Christians cry out to God in their prayers and it's kind of wonder, like, why is Jesus not helping them sooner? Why is he keeping silent? Now, here's a good reminder from our Bibles. Jesus has kept quiet before when people pleaded with him for mercy. Taken longer than we would like. You're not the first one. I'm not the first one. And he does so for good reason. And it's not because he doesn't care. So Jesus did not answer her a word, but his silence will not be forever. Whenever you sincerely plead with Jesus about something and all you get seems to be silence, remember, his silence is not meant to be forever. Now, before Jesus could speak, though, his disciples could not stand it anymore. Rest of verse 23, we read this. Disciples came and backed him, backed Jesus, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. Now, this one persistent Canaanite woman, she's not giving up. She's now pastoring disciples. And as a result, the disciples urged Jesus to do something about this situation. You see, the disciples just see her as like an inconvenience, a problem that they wish could just go away at this point they don't realize that they are witnessing a beautiful example of faith-filled persistence and earnestness in seeking Jesus. So this woman has a great cry. It's a great cry of agony. 
and she's intent on bringing this cry before Jesus. Now, Jesus has been ignoring her, but when the disciples speak, he responds verbally. So how does Jesus respond? And that's the second part, the exchange. We see a very, very interesting verbal exchange happening. Very quick, but very interesting. If it was scripted, it's unlikely that anyone would have imagined Jesus saying this, actually. <laughs> so it's actually good evidence to know that this is historical truth. Verse 24, Jesus said this. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now note that Jesus does not look like he is talking even directly to the woman. He's talking to his disciples. But he's clarifying for them the truth that the first coming is targeted at the Jews. Right? He's not talking about real sheep, by the way. He's not talking about animals. He's talking about the lost sheep of the house of Israel, the ethnic Jews. But God had said this to Jeremiah, Jeremiah 50, 500 over years ago, before Jesus was born. God had said, my people have been lost sheep. God knows his people need a faithful shepherd. And for a period of time before Jesus was born, it also looked like God didn't care. 400 years of what seemed like silence. He said nothing to the prophets. But then Jesus came. Jesus was born fully God, fully man, sent by God the prophet specifically to Israel, his covenant people. That's Jesus' mission as the divine shepherd. Now, it's got implications for the salvation of Gentiles, people like you and me, non-Jews. But Jesus says here, he's going to stick to the plan given to him by God the Father. The Jews first. Now, if you ask a regular Christian today, right, you can try that actually. Who was Jesus sent to when he came on earth? And I would say, actually, most people would say, it's, of course, everybody, right? Jesus was sent for everybody. It's obvious, no-brainer. No. Jesus says he was sent over here explicitly, only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, why does this matter? The truth is that if you don't know your theology well, you will find it harder to appreciate God's grace and goodness in your own life. In the church membership class, Nagape, I teach the new members, right thinking about God fuels, fuels right feelings about God. Right thinking fuels right feelings. Jesus said here, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. If you know your Old Testament well, you hear that line, you'll be thinking, God is a faithful promise keeper. Got lost sheep, and now he sends the shepherd. If you read that line through your own perspective, let's say, minus whatever the Bible says, you hear a Jewish man saying that he's sent only by God to fellow Jews. And you may think, that's so ethnocentric, that's so biased, racist. And you would have missed the crucial point about God's character. How you think about God shapes the way you feel about God. And as the story progresses, you're going to see that this woman thinks and feels very rightly about God, about Jesus. In verse 25, you see the woman is not giving up. But she came and knelt before him, now on her knees already, saying, Lord, help me. Evidently, she's forced her way through, and she's physically now, before Jesus, pleading directly, on the floor, begging him. 
Now imagine again, what do you think Jesus would say? O oh, woman, what do you need? Do not fear, only believe. Maybe according to your desire. Didn't say that. Jesus on this occasion replies in a way that I imagine very few pastors, if any, would have ever responded in pastoral ministry. He responded with what might have been perceived as a mild insult. He said this in verse 26. And he answered and said, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Wow. Now, clearly in context, all right, if you just read it like this, you will know that the children refer to the Jews and the dogs to the Gentiles. That's pretty clear. And I'm very well aware that some scholars have sought to soften the harshness of Jesus' words. They recognize that dogs is a derogatory term, a disrespectful term. It's a term that Jews use to describe the Gentiles, actually. So they say that the specific word in the Greek that Jesus used refers to a more domesticated dog, right? Not a dog of the street or the farm. Now, all of that is true, except that this term is definitely still not pleasant. Jesus is definitely not saying that she's like a cute puppy. Definitely not. It's not a compliment. Even though there's still no sense, there's no sense that this is a personal attack by Jesus, it, is still, it feels still mildly insulting. Jesus is implying to this woman, I've got bread, yes, but I shouldn't take bread meant for the children of God and throw them to you who are just like a dog. It is not good. <laughs> now, why, why would Jesus say that? It sounds so wrong. I tell you why. In one sense, I believe that Jesus said those provocative words to intentionally test her. Now, clearly, as you read through the scriptures, Jesus doesn't say that all the time to everybody. But on this occasion, since he knows the hearts of all people, he's testing her faith to see how she would respond to a comment like that, whether she walked away angrily or whether she would continue to seek his help humbly. That's part of the answer. Yet it's also more than that. You see, Jesus never ever lies. And he always chooses his words carefully. Since the term dog is not a positive term, there must be a reason why Jesus still chooses to use that. Even if it's a test of faith, it must still be based on honest truth. If not, then it's a lie already. It's just talking nonsense. Jesus cannot possibly be talking nonsense just to see the effect it has on that woman's heart. So listen carefully. The Canaanite woman is not an unworthy, unworthy dog in the sense that the Jews think about people like her. The Jews deem her an unworthy dog and do so out of ethnic pride. They look down on her judgmentally. They think they are superior to the Gentiles. That is wrong. No room for that in Christian thinking. But there's another sense in which this woman is like an unworthy dog. And it's actually good for her soul to recognize it. This woman is sinfully unworthy to come before a holy God. Just like you and me. And anyone who possesses true faith in God must recognize that. I am not worthy. God alone, God Almighty is worthy. I am a nobody. 
but God Almighty, God alone is Almighty. Now, sometimes non-Christians misunderstand this. Now, many people in society have been hurt and criticized by people in society. Maybe they get invited to church, and they hope to hear positive things about themselves. And then they say, let's say they come to a church like Agape and they hear our prayer of confessions. And sometimes we pray, you know, Lord, we are wretches before you. We are sinful. We are ugly. We are unworthy. And they may not tell you, but they quietly wonder, like, why, why are they talking like this? In society, in my workplace, in my school, I've already been bullied by people with all those negative comments. I've been called an unworthy dog by others in society. Always not good enough according to people's expectations. You know, cannot meet the standards. I'm sick and tired of that. I come to this Jesus who is supposed to be loving and kind and he uses that same term, dog, on me too. Why? Here in this story, we see the value of rightly recognizing our unworthiness. Not as society defines it, but as God defines it. This story teaches us something about faith. I believe Jesus is teaching, implicitly testing the genuineness of the woman's faith. Do you recognize your unworthiness before God? Do you recognize your unworthiness before God? Not your worthiness, all right? Based on the artificial standards placed by the prideful Jews on you, you should dismiss that, you should ignore that. But do you recognize your unworthiness in the light of God's infinitely holy standards? You must not ignore that. You must not ignore that. For all unworthy sinners, the plan, the path to genuine faith, requires bowing in humble repentance that you have fallen short. It's the most liberating kind of recognition that you have fallen short. Not falling short of the world's standards, which leaves you bitter or depressed, but falling short of God's standards, of His glory. That recognition leads you to repentance and faith. Now, so how does this woman respond? She passes the test, and in so doing, offers a profoundly beautiful response. She says in verse 27, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Now, this woman is a Gentile, but she's so theologically aware, understands the things of God very well. She knows that the Jews are God's covenant people in the Old Testament, but she insists still that Jesus should help her situation nonetheless. Why? She didn't say it is because God should care for the whole world. That's how most people would have responded. You ask, like many people have just said, that, yes, Lord, uh, but everyone in the world deserves a chance to eat at the master's table, right? It's like, God, you created everyone. You are the creator. You should care for everyone. And that includes us Gentiles. She could have said that. But a woman doesn't go there. Yes, God loves the world. God cares for everyone in this world. But at the end of the day, God's grace and mercy have nothing, zero, nothing to do with what we as broken sinners deserve. Nobody deserves God's grace. Nobody deserves God's mercy. Not a single soul. So this woman's sound theology leads her away from thoughts of what we deserve, what she deserves, which is basically nothing. She recognizes that, in some sense, dogs is actually 
an apt description for unworthy sinners. So she doesn't talk about creation. She offers another reason altogether. She says that even the dogs, we Gentiles, eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Now that's an amazing answer. She's not just painting a figurative picture of dogs humbly eating from the master's table, you know. Because that would just be a clever, witty answer. You know, sometimes we can give witty answers on the spot when people say something interesting. This woman is doing way more than that. She understands what Jesus is saying about his mission. And she replies with a profound understanding of the gospel as it had been revealed at that point for her. She's actually pointing in her response to the promises given to Abraham. Genesis 12.3, yes. God had actually told Abraham, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. In you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed, all Gentiles included. So the Jews were God's chosen people, yes. But the salvation plan all along was always for the Gentiles of the earth to be blessed through them eventually. So she's saying, God, yes, I know, you feed the Jews first, they are at the table. But haven't you promised, haven't you promised that we would get to eat one day too? This woman is appealing through Jesus to God as the faithful promise keeper. I imagine Jesus smiling at this point. (laughs) <laughs> the disciples probably a little bit confused. I believe Jesus is impressed with what he heard, but not because of her intelligence or her quick thinking, but because of her faith. She had a great cry, but she does the best thing anyone can do in times of desperation. Ever been desperate before? What's the best thing you can do? She takes that great cry to Jesus and exhibits great faith in him. Verse 28, Jesus recognizes immediately the way she responds. So she said, he said, Jesus answered her, Oh woman, great is your faith. <laughs> What's so great about faith? Now notice this, right? Her great faith is not about just believing that her daughter can be healed by Jesus. She's not saying here, you can heal my daughter, you can heal my daughter, I'm sure you can heal my daughter, I have faith in you. No, that's not what is so great about her faith. What is so great about her faith is that she believed in God's promises, H.O. promises that went all the way back to Abraham, and she believed in God's character to fulfill those promises, even though it was made so long ago. She doesn't just know cognitively those promises. She believed those promises. Jesus hasn't even fulfilled the primary mission to the Jews yet. And yet, based on whatever she knew about Jesus, she already believed by faith that the blessings of Israel would overflow to the Gentiles, people like you and me, and like her. That's how much she trusts in the character of God, the power of God, the Word of God. Based on whatever had been revealed up to that point, you could say she believes the gospel. She believes the gospel. What God has promised in His Word, He will do. That's faith built on true knowledge of God and trust in God's character. That's one part of a great faith. But notice the second part, and you don't want to forget that. The second part. This faith is persistent. It's persistent. She knows all these truths, but she's not passive. She actively pleads with Jesus based on these truths. 
Her great faith is not just demonstrated by her humble trust in God's character, but also in her bold persistence in seeking God. She's like Jacob, wrestling with the angel, refusing to let go of Jesus as she cries out for the blessing. Now that's someone with great faith. If you have great faith, you'll say, I trust God's character to fulfill His promise, and I will persist in praying and asking. So you always find these two traits in great faith. Two traits found in great faith. Number one, humble trust. Humble trust. It's not in the desired outcome according to your wishes, but humbly trusting in God's character as revealed in His Word. Humble trust. Number two, bold persistence. Bold per persistence. Not because you're fearful, right? You're not persisting, just, not just because, not because you're fearful of a potential terrible outcome. Oh no, I don't want that. I cannot happen that. I want to be persisting because I really don't want it to happen. That's not the case. You are boldly persistent in view of God's character and promises in His Word. That's why you're so persistent. That's great faith. Humble trust and bold persistent. Not one or the other but both. And that's what this woman is exhibiting. She's saying, Oh Lord, I am unworthy, but you are worthy. I trust you. I trust your character. Do as it is promised in the scriptures. And as I apply these promises specifically to my life, have mercy on me. Have mercy on my daughter. Now, as Jesus hears this great cry of this woman and sees a great faith, in humbly trusting and boldly persisting in a request, he grants this woman the blessing that she so desires. And that's the third part, the blessing. Now, what's the blessing? The text tells us that this woman has her desire fulfilled. The rest of verse 28 says this, be done, for you as you be done for you as you desire. And then that moment, Matthew writes this, and her daughter was healed instantly at that exact point even though she was so far away from her she was healed instantly so that demon that was oppressing her daughter had to go why because jesus said so and immediately it had to depart and trouble that girl no more you know i'm very thankful that my wife seated here is a christian but i've never forgotten all these years how she came to faith partly because of what had happened in my mother-in-law's mother life, what she had witnessed in her own mother's life. So my mother-in-law back then in the 90s, went through a season where she was extremely weak, and some of you might know this, and she felt a very, very strong sense of heavy oppression, hearing voices at night and all of that as well. She felt faint when she walked and was weakening by the day. People told her that she looked terrible, ghastly, Something clearly was wrong. So she went to see a lot of doctors, actually. I was just asking her this morning to verify the details. Went to see a number of doctors. Doctors did checkups. Said nothing was wrong with her. And she went through that whole period for about four years like that. Four years of that weak state, dizzy, you know, giddy and all of those things. Seeing doctors. Didn't help. And so she turned to religious help. Sought help from many different religions, People came to the house, did all kinds of rituals, didn't help. Problem just intensified. 
Then someday someone told her to believe in Jesus. I said, okay. She decided to give her life to Jesus Christ. This God, whom people claim, can be so strong to help her. And just one day, in a most dramatic fashion, it wasn't even gradual, that oppression, that affliction was just gone. Just gone. Demonic presence no more. Heard nothing strange, felt nothing strange thereafter. She was healed instantly by grace through faith. It's an amazing testimony. If you ever get to talk to her and ask her about it, she will tell you enthusiastically. One of those beautiful testimonies of God's power and grace. Now, what's the blessing in today's story, though? What's the blessing in my mother-in-law's story? Now, definitely in both cases, the miraculous healing is a great blessing. Yet, we must not mistake the blessing here simply as the, out the outcome. It would have been a tragedy if the woman's daughter recovered on her own and never came to know Jesus. It would have been a tragedy for my mother-in-law to recover on her own and never got to know Jesus. Whenever you have a great cry, the best answer cannot be the positive outcome you want. It cannot just be that. We all know that in this broken world, many great cries don't result in the positive outcomes we desire. People fall ill and die. People starve to death. Car crashes happen. The Bible never promises us a life without suffering. Not all great cries have a happy ending, the way we desire on earth, on this side of eternity. But whenever you have a great cry, there is an answer that is always right, always good. And that answer is great faith. The best answer to your great cry is great faith. Great faith in a great God. Whenever you have a great cry in your life, and trust me, at some point, everyone on earth does. Nobody is spared. Let your great cry lead you to great faith in a great God. Why is great faith always right? Why is it always right? Because great faith gives you a clearer vision of this great God who has come to save you for Himself. Great faith allows you to say what Dr. Tim Keller once said, and he has experienced it. Even the worst that can happen, your death, is ultimately the best thing that can happen. Even the worst that can happen, your death, is ultimately the best thing that can happen. Why? Because when you die in faith, you get to meet Jesus who loves you and be with Him forever. You see, Matthew included this story in the gospel, not simply to tell us to believe in Jesus for healing of physical and spiritual afflictions. His purpose is to reveal Jesus to His readers. Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised anointed one, prophesied in the Scriptures in the Old Testament and who has finally come on earth to accomplish God's will. And through his story, we learn that the actions of Jesus, the Messiah, we learn that God is a compassionate healer. So compassionate that his compassion comes for us at a severe cost to himself. You, know, you may remember these words when Jesus died on the cross. He said those famous words, 
and we've said it so many times in our church, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, this was a great cry of agony because he was experiencing the wrath of God for our sake. But it was not a cry of despondence or disappointment. It's astounding because his great cry of agony was simultaneously a great cry of faith too. Jesus was quoting scripture, you know, never forget that. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's Psalms 22. He wasn't asking, why is this happening to me? This is so crazy. Why is this happening? No. He's, he knows exactly why this was happening. He knows the promises made in the word better than the Canaanite woman ever did. Jesus went on the cross in order to fulfill those promises. Jesus chose faithful obedience to his heavenly Father to save us from sin and death, eternal death. Through his loving sacrifice, Jesus, the God-man, stood between a holy God and sinful mankind, and in his spirit, he gave a better cry than any one of us ever could, ever could cry out to God in agony. Have mercy on them, not me. Do not forsake them. Judge me. That's the loving heartbeat of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it was done for Jesus as he desired. The greatest blessing of salvation of bestowed was bestowed. By his stripes, we are mercifully healed by grace through faith. Unworthy dogs like you and me get invited to the table and participate not as dogs, but as precious children of promise. That's amazing grace. That's incredible compassion. That's the compassion of Jesus Christ. That's the beauty of the gospel. Compassion of our great God. Now, that's the greatest blessing of God's compassion towards us. And for all of you seated here today listening to this sermon, wherever God has placed you, whatever concerns surround you, this is your application for today. Come before God in humble trust and bold persistence. Arise and seek Him earnestly in faith. Whether you're new to the faith or you've been walking with God for years, grow your faith in Him. For He is a great God, worthy of our great faith. Let's bow before the Lord in prayer. Gracious God, Gracious Father, truly we recognize there is none like you. Even as you have revealed through your word your greatness, your compassion, and the beauty of the gospel revealed in Christ Jesus, stir up faith within each one of us. This morning I pray, especially for those who are going through difficult times and crying out desperately to you this season, have mercy on them, O Lord. Have mercy on them. And by faith in Christ Jesus, we are also grateful that we have become the blessed recipients of the gospel promises that you've made long ago. Your word declares that you will complete the good work that you have begun in us. Lead us as a faithful shepherd, O Lord. Guard our hearts and minds that we may follow you faithfully all the days of our lives and receive the inheritance that you have prepared for us. By grace, through faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to this sermon podcast. You can find more of our sermons online on our website at www.agape.org.sg.